I have the pleasure of being here today with my co-host James and Dr. Lars Stoltzfus. Say hi, everybody. Um, hey. Hello. I'm pretty sure everybody knows James. But anyways, let me tell you about <laughs> Lars. I think it was 2018, I was at a conference, and Lars was a queer person at a conference that I spoke at, and today I am so privileged and honored to be here so we can talk a little bit about Lars. So Lars, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? That sounds why good. You, why would oh. you have been at that conference? Well... <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I was pursuing my PhD, and I focused on queer and or trans explained people. For a long time, I thought that I was the only one in this kind of weird, unique place. And it was only after I did kind of a random Google search that I found James. And then I found the website LGBT Amish. Um, LGBTQ Amish. And I was like, this is a whole world. And then I found out through a friend that Tor Von Traeger was putting on, with the help of Elam Zook and You Mary, this conference for ex-Amish and like ex-Jehovah's Witness, ex-ultra-Orthodox Jewish people, ex-Muslim people. It was just this wild, amazing combination of humans. And when Mary got up and told the story of, you know, Mary, what you've been through, I was deeply, deeply impacted by it, both by the content and also just the vibrant queerness that I was seeing. And I had not resonated with someone in that way ever. And I think I came up to you very timidly and, and, said something about also being queer and being trans and <laughs> Mary. <laughs> I think I might have cried after that, by the way. <laughs> it, was, it was just such a, I don't know. I can't even describe it. Just the historical moment. Yeah. And then we became Facebook friends and I was like, this just. Yep. Constantly in awe of <laughs> what you were doing. And I mean, similar, James, with your poetry and your activism and both of you, your activism and how you build community. It's just, it's amazing. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, Lars. There is definitely an LGBTQ Amish Mennonite plain community that's coming together continuously. Um, and it's beautiful to see, for sure. It and it's is. also a privilege to be a part of that and see it happening in our lifetimes. I mean, because so, of people like both of you, Thaddeus Schleybach, um, the work that you have been doing and getting different people from different communities involved, you have been advancing this. Like you both know Thank that, you. right? Thank you. Yeah. Nice to acknowledge. 
Well, then I think it's also some of the folks who were guests last year. I know that some of them actually like were have been advancing this movement as well to raise awareness for LGBTQ Amish and Anabaptists across different cities. And that actually is really just breathtaking and amazing to watch happen. So it's also mm-hmm. the people who listen and who follow this movement who become active. It takes a village to make change. Right? (laughs) From many walks and ways of life. Okay. So what made you interested in Amish and Anabaptist stuff, Lars? Like, why would you be interested in that? All right. Buckle in, because this is a weird story. (laughs) And I'm going to say this with my knowledge that whenever I tell folks my family story and my own background, many folks, the first thing that they say to me is, you're lying or you have to be kidding because it's very unlikely. My dad was raised Old Order Amish. His family moved to the beachy Amish community and his trajectory was Old Order Amish to beachy to conservative Mennonite to liberal Mennonite, to Baptist, and I'm not quite sure how he would classify himself right now. And my mom's background, she was raised conservative Mennonite in the Deep South. Her parents moved there as part of the conservative Mennonite conference's domestic missionary um, movement. And so her parents, these conservative Mennonite people, moved to this poor podunk Southern town to start a farm. And that's where she was born. And when her and my father met at the conservative Mennonite college, Rosedale Bible College, they hit it off and they moved back to this town, which is where my brother and I were raised. So we have this heavily accented ex-Amish dad and this Southern accented conservative Mennonite mother in this small southern town very much a redneck town and that's the cultural environment in which my brother and i grew up it was very strange because when you look at amish culture mennonite culture and southern culture none of them mesh well no not right. at all. <laughs> Not at all. So were were you as children, like were you were you born in the church or were you born outside of the church? Like we were born within the conservative Mennonite church. Okay. Um, Thank and you. And yeah, we were very active members. At the time, my dad was pretty alienated from his family. And he didn't want to teach us Pennsylvania Dutch. He didn't want to teach us German. He wanted us to be fully kind of acclimated into the conservative Mennonite side of our family and the Southerners that surrounded us. But because he came from a background of so much trauma caused by the church, caused by intergenerational violence, he didn't want us to be a part of that heritage. And it wasn't until I was much older that I even knew what Amish culture looked like, how it sounded. Um, How did that feel, finding out about Amish culture? It felt strange. 
Um, I remember the first time I met his side of the family. There was a reunion and it was, I've never felt so alienated in my life because when I was younger, <laughs> the first thing that my parents did when they left the conservative Mennonite conference, the conservative Mennonite church, my mom gave me this awful Princess Diana haircut. It was in the 90s. It was goofy <laughs> and short. I didn't have a say in this. So I had this short hair. It smelled like hairspray. It was crunchy, I'm sure. And everyone on my dad's side of the family was deeply, deeply conservative. Several of them were still beachy, communicating in Pennsylvania Dutch. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know why these people looked even more intense than my mom's side of the family. <laughs> and they had wait, no wait, idea. Wait. Even <laughs> more intense. They did not know what to do with me because I was running around wearing my, you know, capris with my Princess Diana hair. And I think some of my cousins couldn't fathom how I fit into their world. Did their jaws ever get lifted up off the floor? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it was it was so strange. And them talking in front of me, speaking Pennsylvania Dutch, and me not knowing, I felt such a sense of, I couldn't identify it at the time, but now I would classify it as a loss because I, I couldn't even be a part of the community, even if I wanted to, because there were all these barriers that my dad had put up as a way to protect us. But then when he was back on better terms with his family, there was no way that my older brother and I could integrate into that. Uh, can we talk a little bit about those barriers? Because sometimes um, people ask, like, can I go join an Amish church? Well, here's the thing. is, In order to join an Amish church, you would have to learn the barrier. You would have to learn the ordnung. You would have, the ordnung is the, the rules for a uh, letter that the church writes and rewrites twice a year. It can easily be changed. Uh, they do it frequently when there's mm -hmm. things and then there's a lot of unwritten rules and then yes. you have to learn like to be able to read their bibles too for many communities like that's that's those are like the requirements they would never actively uh, recruit you to be inside of the community because they don't they just don't do that Right. And if you had, by chance, if you had been an outsider, like non-Amish, and you joined an Amish church, you learned the language, you did everything that you possibly could do to assimilate into the Amish, your Amish community, because you're not, because you have a different background, the Amish would hold you at arm's length. Mm -hmm. um, like, you talk about uh, not being able to understand the Amish people that were talking Pennsylvania mm -hmm. Dutch right in front of you. They were probably commenting on your physical appearance right in front of you. They were like picking you apart, you know. Uh, Amish, Amish are really, um, um, I, I'm not even sure what the word I'm looking for is. Beyond, critical. Um, the, 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 
critical. Critical. They like to say the clothes don't get you into heaven, but the way they talk, right. they talk as if like they're really yeah. judgmental of that. And then another thing is, is like they would never, what James is talking about is the caste system, social structure that they have. Um, so on that ladder of social structure that they have, you would never, ever be able to achieve the top of the ladder. Like you would never be from a good family. You would never be right. one of those people that God has just blessed. That's you would right. never achieve that. No matter how hard you tried, there would always be something mm -hmm. because you were not born into the culture. You were not given the privilege of being born into the culture. And I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, Lars. That is really, I can only imagine how horrific and traumatic that was for you. It was, you know, I was a child, so I didn't think much of it at the time. Um, and interestingly, though, there were other ways that my cousins acted, ways that my aunts and uncles acted that did make sense to me, either because I could compare them to Southern culture and its criticality of outsiders and how people would treat my dad and my mom. There was, there's this hierarchy in Southern culture too, where you have these towns and people have lived there for generations. Nobody leaves and you have a name and it's recognized because people there know your people there. And for my parents, they weren't there long enough. My dad was this unknown entity. He was a Yankee. He had this accent. He had a name that nobody could pronounce. And... Mm -hmm. So even though he yeah. tried and tried and tried to integrate the community, he couldn't. And my mom really couldn't. And my brother and I couldn't. And so I saw kind of the inverse of that with some of my family. But I also realized that there were some deeply Amish ways in which we were raised. So the intergenerational trauma, right? Adults who don't contend with their own trauma reenact it. Uh-huh. And they really do. That happened as my brother and I grew up. And there were also these just ideological ways of moving through the world that are so just deeply Amish. There's no other way that I know how to describe it. It's <laughs> the way of moving through the world and how my I feel dad. personally attacked by this relatable <laughs> content. How he views morality, how we, how we were taught about clothing and adornment, how we were taught about toys and the value of hard work and kind of earning your keep and earning your place. As if like there is no space, was there space for creativity where you love to explore with art? And there was, that was one of the big reasons why my dad left his family is because he wanted to be an artist and okay. they thought that he was just the strangest mm -hmm. thing and um, then the other thing i'm sorry you were oh no and the other thing is is like you know productivity based value like your your value in life is based on productivity that is absolutely an amish mindset that is i see it i see it mm -hmm. oof that's a, that's a deep one. 
Yes. Yeah. And Mennonites, they have a work ethic, but the way that my dad approached it was completely different. It was such a core part of identity. Mm-hmm. Not just it, something that you do. It's something that you are. You are this. If you are not this work ethic, you are, you are considered lazy. They call you mm-hmm. fall. And mm-hmm. you are just no. And so that also is difficult for people that are disabled or they may be neurodivergent because if they struggle with certain tasks, then automatically they are labeled often as fall or lazy or just you're just not applying yourself hard enough. And so when you raise people with the expectation that their productivity becomes a part of themselves, it can be I can see where that could be really hard as a child to even like navigate that and it can result in like the intergenerational trauma being mm-hmm. passed on or reenacted mm-hmm. yeah it was very a lot of things that you know kids tend to just accept the world of adults as normal this is what mm-hmm. adults are and this is what family is and this is what culture is As an adult now, I can look at my family and I can look at my childhood and so easily see these were the conservative Mennonite, the Mennonite values that were stressed. And these were the Amish values and these were the Southern values and the weird amalgamation of them that my brother and I tried and failed, spectacularly failed, (laughs) is just so interesting to me because you have these three different cultures Uh and they have these very discordant views and they all have their kind of slice of American whiteness. And so they get lumped together and then they get kind of disaggregated and they get talked about in similar ways and in different ways, like jokes about rednecks being inbred and jokes about Amish people being inbred. It's the same joke. Truth. I I mean, truth. I can verify that. (laughs) Yes. It's the same joke. Yeah. So noticing those similarities and differences as I got older was just really interesting to me because it's like I didn't quite belong to any of these cultures and I would never belong to any of these cultures. But at the same time, genetically, ethno-religiously, geographically, I did kind of belong to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to ask, like, how, how did you ever begin to, like, navigate, like, a way to embrace part of your heritage? Or have you cast it all aside? I, actually, the older I get and the more I learn and understand about the way that I was raised, the way my brother and I were raised, I can make sense of it. So in my case, knowledge has been a way that I've been able to navigate my own history. Uh And there are so many things that I wish, I wish I had learned growing up. I wish I had learned more about the things my dad went through when he was a kid. It would have helped me understand his choices as a parent. You know, I wish I had learned more about his side of the family when I was younger and like how, (laughs) how my family tree is such a topiary 
because there are people on my mom's side of the family back when they were Amish and on my dad's side of the family who got married to each other. And just like, I have the same relative on both sides of my family tree and that it is common. And I wish I had known all of that stuff when I was younger and I know it now. And so what is the story of the, the, the Solpuse, the homestead? Can you hmm. touch on that a little bit? I know sure. it has its own, its own page, its own uh, website, something. Yep. Uh, yeah. So Nicholas Stolzfus, um emigrated. It's kind of unclear whether he was kicked out of Europe or whether he kind of had some debts that he was running from. <laughs> combination of both. Well, um, he was a good Amish, right? He was. Um, he didn't want to give up his religion for the state. Mm-hmm. And so he and his wife and later his brother Christian moved to the United States. They moved to Pennsylvania and the Nicholas Stoltzfus homestead is where they kind of built their home. It's in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, and it's still, it's standing. It was in rough shape, but some Stoltzfuses and their work ethic, they got together <laughs> and they started <laughs> They built a barn and they're trying to turn it into a heritage site. And there have been a lot of Stoltzfuses through the years who have come and visited my parents are currently the caretakers and they, along with my older brother, live in the Wyoming area and are trying to kind of set the record straight about the Stoltzfus family story. Like, yes, Anabaptists were persecuted. There's a reason why a lot of Amish and Mennonite families have some version of the martyr's mirror lying around. This is <laughs> so true. You can just see those horrifying images. We um, need those and, images. Right? So there's that part of the trajectory of fleeing to this place that promised some kind of religious freedom, but then also being settler colonists and mm-hmm. displacing people who are already there, which in a different way is an enactment of a similar violence. So escaping one place and then kind of forcing people to escape their place. And where, where did he come from in Europe? Was he from Switzerland or was he from Germany or? He was from the Switzerland region. So uh, Switzerland, France, Germany, he moved around some. You know, we're probably distantly related, Lars, because all my ancestors are from the Switzerland, the France area. Um, yeah, we're probably, you know, we're probably well, all like sure. cousins. Here. <laughs> right? I have, I have, I uh, have over five thousand cousins. On uh, yeah. So there's that. Look, if you get a copy of the Fisher book, <laughs> you can trace it because I'm in there. Oh, we got written. Well, my child got written out of my family book. One of them. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's but completely wild. My dead name, so. will totally take someone out of the family history book. They'll just remove them like they never existed. Exactly. <laughs> that person never existed. But hey, Nicholas yeah. was a good Amish man. We don't know if he was like, you know, 
running from debtor's prison, right? Because back in those days, you'd get thrown in prison if you didn't pay your debt or if he was being persecuted or if he was like just running away. We, we don't know. Is yeah, that the story? My, my older brother, Nick, Nicholas Stoltzfus, named after Nicholas Stoltzfus. <laughs> <laughs> this is common. It's like, you know, Nick the fifth. <laughs> yeah. Um, he is currently working on writing out the history of Nicholas and Nicholas's family and kind of their trajectory. So he's working on a book in tandem with um, an historian, Rose Byler, who, Mary, I'm sure y'all are related, but um, she's a Is it B-E-I-L-E-R or B-Y-L-E-R? It is... I think it's BEI. Okay, we're probably so, not as closely related then. Distant, kid. We're, we're a little bit further away, <laughs> but okay. Sorry, yeah. continue. <laughs> uh, so she's a historian. She had been studying queer archives, and now she's working with my brother along with another historian, Zach Stoltzfus, who is known for his family. They run Stoltzfus Meets in Lancaster. So, you know, there's a whole Stoltzfus connection. But they are working on writing an account of the Stoltzfus family that takes into account the fact that they were settlers in the States and that they did displace Indigenous people and that their history is really complicated and that the history of Amish people coming here is complicated. And it isn't necessarily this like peachy American dream-esque story of religious freedom. It's a lot more nuanced and messy than that. And I'm really excited to read it because I think that that team is approaching it, even if it isn't explicitly queer, they're approaching it from a very queer way. These uh -huh. kind of non-conforming perspectives that don't align with the tradition of how Amish people are written about. Mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah. I might actually read it. You've made me want to read it. So there's that. Um, I guess like when we talk about like embracing your heritage, like have you ever done anything else? Like the Stoltzfus homestead is, what do you find that makes you feel connected to your heritage? Or do you have anything that makes you feel connected to that heritage? Hmm. How about the food, Lars? <laughs> there were so many foods that we ate growing up that I didn't know weren't like normal things. Like okay. scrapple. Which one? Haystacks? Hey, oh yes. Oh yes. Haystacks. I made haystacks. Scrapple, oh my god, it's so good. Scrapple. Um, yes. Now I'm hungry. You know, yeah, wassail, um, shoe fly pie that like all of these things that my dad knew and like he would make or my mom would make. And I was like, yeah, this is just food is food. And then it started to have this like southern flair with it. So we'd have like scrapple and cheese grits. <laughs> nice, nice. Interesting. <laughs> that, that's just really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, and, so do you know what Bobby Andy Pie is? I don't know. Oh. It's one of those things where if I had it, 
I probably would. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can go look it up after this. We're, we're almost at our time. So um, I was going to ask each of you, what thoughts do you have for currently Amish and Anabaptist queer folks? I think for me, my, oh. Yeah, go ahead, Lars. My main thing is it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel conflicted. It's okay to feel this tension. Humans generally have a tension between wanting to be known and understood and then wanting to be safe, even if it means not being known. And we don't do well with the uncertainty. And so we fight between self-disclosure and safety. And there's no wrong way to go about trying to navigate that huge, huge interpersonal tension because you have a choice of risking everything to be out and be yourself in a way that you can't currently, but then mm-hmm. you also run the risk of losing your community. Right. That comes with a price. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Like that's, yep. Yeah. And it's, it's okay to feel that. Yeah, it is. It really mm-hmm. is. It's okay to be uncomfortable yeah. with and those feelings. A, and it's okay to not want to leave the closet. It's okay to maybe not feel safe to leave. Well, and you know, that also goes back to another thing that I've thought about recently, and it is that, you know, it's so important that people understand that some people are safe to come out of the closet and they don't, they're not risking losing everything necessarily by coming out of the closet. Other people are not. And so for everybody, that is a really deeply personal thing. And it's Mm -hmm. really up to you. And if you choose to do that, you know, there are people that that coming out, come out of the closet. There are people that will help you. And if you don't choose to do that again, you have to do what's right for you. Yes. Yes. You got anything, James? Well, you know, um, this is the year 2022 and, you know, we've had several generations now of legal gay marriage in the United States. And when you step into the Amish community or certain conservative factions of like the Mennonites, you know, it's like you're stepping back in time. Um, all the progress that has been made in the, in the world around you is completely, you know, it's, it's, it's not recognized at all. And, that their, their attitudes haven't really shifted much. So I think it's important to recognize that, you know, there's homophobia and then there's Amish homophobia, you know, and this is steep in 16th century hardcore um, yep. ideology and um, the resulting um, dynamics that, that play out when someone comes out has led to a lot of really... Um, has led to a lot of really um, unpleasant situations. It's been family separations. Um, and um, it is never a happy story when someone comes out as gay in the Amish community. Um, but we're, we're working to change that. And I thank you so much, Lars, for coming on to 
share share that. And if we can give any gay Amish kid, Mennonite kid, a lesbian Mennonite girl out there, if we can give them hope, then um, we have very much absolutely. Yep. Amen. And thank you, Lars, for being here. Thank you, James, for being here. I hope everybody has a wonderful and beautiful day. And we will see everyone next time.